pray for me and for us that you would help us now as we come to your word. I pray that, uh, that God, you would enable us to listen well, to hear, and in our hearing to believe and in our believing to live this. I pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Malachi chapter 2, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2. I want to read from verse 17 through chapter 3 and verse 5. Malachi chapter 2, please, verse 17. Hear the word of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired workers, the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, as we've been working our way through this prophet, we find that there are a number of disputations, that is, disagreements, if you will, between, between God and the people. And they normally go like this. God makes a statement. They ask a question. And normally in that question, there's kind of a mm, uh, hardness about it, an edge about it, if you will. And then God gives his response. We find the same here. The, 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 the claim by God through the prophet is, you have wearied the Lord with your, with your words. And, and the words with which they've wearied the Lord, are these. Because they ask how we wearied him. And the the words that they wearied God with are these. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. In other words, they were thinking in their experience, they were looking around and saying, God must delight in evil and those who do evil. That's what it appears to us. And, And they kept coming to God with these words in some sense or speaking them among themselves, talking to each other. uh, And that was wearying the Lord. The the second was a question that they would ask at least one another, if not God, where is the God of justice? And so so God was wearied by these. and, and, And you can see that in their experience that they were wondering these things. You remember that they had been, this people had been in exile and then had been promised by God that they would return and they did return and in their returning they rebuilt the walls around the city they rebuilt the temple they were expecting then because of all of that they were expecting that 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 the glory that was once theirs as they thought about David and Jonathan the glory that was once in the temple the very glory of God would return and that all the nations then would, would see Jerusalem and would be 
those and they would come to Jerusalem in order to worship God and that the people of Israel would be prosperous once again. What they found themselves some generation or so after the people had returned to Jerusalem, what they found was that rather than that, the glory hadn't returned to the temple. The temple wasn't as glorious as it had once been. And not only that, but the people were not prosperous and the nations were not envious of Jerusalem and they weren't coming there by, by, by the hordes in order to, 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 to worship God. And, and so the people, we begin to wonder, we look at our lives and we look at those around us because we're still this small remnant and we're in the midst of this larger uh, occupying nation, these Persians, and they seem to be doing well, they seem to be prospering, they seem to be mighty, we seem to be weak, we seem to be poor. So what is it with God? Does, does he, is, is he delighting in them so that they're prospering and we're not? And where's justice? Isn't God to bring justice. Uh, this isn't the first time the people of God had inquired of him. You remember if you know Psalm number 73. Psalm 73 is, is one of those psalms where the psalmist looks at his life and looks around and he says this. He says, have I kept my heart clean in vain? He says that of God. And the reason he says that is he looks around and he sees the unrighteous prospering and yet he is not. And he's saying, God, I belong to you. God, I'm following after you. God, 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 what's the deal? Why am I not prospering and they're prospering given that I'm yours and they're not giving that I desire to live in a way that's pleasing to you and they, they don't. The prophet Habakkuk, similar kind of thing. He looked around and he said, why am I observing this iniquity, God, and it seems like you're not doing anything about it at all. Where's your justice? Now, God didn't say of the psalmist in Psalm number 73, nor of Habakkuk, that he was wearying of their words. But he does to this people in the days of Malachi. Why? What was the difference? What would be the difference between the psalmist of 73 and Habakkuk as, as they observe similar kinds of things and, and cry out to God about this and, and these people. Well, the difference is that in their crying, that is Psalm 73 and Habakkuk, and their crying out, what, what they were really concerned about was the glory of God. What they were concerned about was, was God, I don't understand. Please help me to understand what's going on here because, because I desire for you to be glorified. For you to be glorified means that your people would be prosperous and all of that and, and your people would be free from iniquity. So God, God, why is it that, that you're not acting to, to show your glory? These in the days of Malachi, that's not their attitude. They're cynics. They have a bit of a sneer when they come to God. Uh, they're, they're, they're skeptics. They, they don't really believe that he's the God of justice. And so what they're really saying is, God, we want to be prosperous because it will make our life better. Uh, God, we, we want to be honored because it will make our life better. Uh, God, we want the nations to come to us because it'll make our life better. And so that's their point. It's all about them, not about God. And so God says, I'm wearied. You're, you're questioning me, uh, not out of an honest inquiry, but because you're cynical, because you're skeptical, because you really don't fear me. I wonder about us sometimes. When we pray, do we want stuff? 
from God because it will simply make our lives easier uh, rather than be for his glory. As I look at the political process happening in in our nation, I wonder, do do we want things to be better here, more righteous here uh, because we really desire for God to be glorified or because we want simply our lives uh, to be easier? God, if, if our nation looked like this, then it would go better for us rather than we want our nation to look like this because it would be glorifying to you. Where are you, God? And I wonder, too, with them, can there be a certain disappointment? I mean, they, they came back, this remnant came back from exile, back to Jerusalem with great hopes and, and great promises. And they're, and they're wondering, by this time, why haven't all those been satisfied? I wonder about us sometimes. We, we, we begin our Christian lives all excited. Yes, I'm going to live this particular way, and, and this is how my life is going to look, and, and this is the power of the church, and this is what we'll see as the kingdom expands, if you will, in, in our world. And, and as the church grows, and as, 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 as the word of Christ is proclaimed, and, and then after so many years, we see... Oh, hasn't been quite like that. I'm still struggling with this and that. I thought I'd be done with that by now. God, where are you? What's going on? I, I, I thought that, that the word of God would permeate my family or permeate my community or permeate our country or permeate the world in a way that I'm not seeing God. What's the deal? Are you really there? Do you really care? He, he answers them. God does. In, in essence, he, he answers them by, by saying, I'm coming and I do care. And he does that in these verses in chapter, chapter 3. Chapter, verses 2 and 3 we know uh, from Handel's use of them in the Messiah. But God lays it out like this. He says, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, says, I'm I'm coming and I'm sending. There's really three people mentioned here. One is the speaker, I. And that's God, the Lord of hosts, as he puts it. He says, behold, I send. And then the end of that verse, he says, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is the Lord of hosts. And then he's going to send his messenger. I send my messenger. And then also there is one coming to uh, the temple, to his temple, who's the messenger of the covenant. And so those, those three. So the question, who are they? Well, first, God. I, the Lord of hosts. And you'll notice it's Lord with capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capitalized there at the end of Verse 2, if you have a translation that does that. And, and the reason when you find the word Lord in all caps, it means it's the Old Testament Hebrew word Yahweh. Or as we found in Genesis, or I'm sorry, in Exodus, when, when God gives his name, that name to Moses to tell the people who has sent Moses to them. It's Yahweh. It means I am. I am God. That's what it means. I am. I exist. I've always existed. I'm, I'm self Existent, I'm, I'm, I'm self-sufficient, self-dependent. I need nothing. I am God. Now, when God calls himself I am, what he's doing is that he's saying that any others who call themselves God are named I am not. And that's the implication. God says I am. So Moses, when you go back to Egypt and you face the gods of Egypt, understand I am, but they're not. Understand that I 
am God. That's the one who's speaking here. That's the one to whom they're speaking in the days of Malachi. Uh, Do you delight in evil, you God, the God who is? And are you really just? And he says, I am. I am that God. No, I don't delight in evil. And yes, I am just. And here's what I'm going to show you. First this, I'm going to send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. In other words, he says, I'm coming and he's going to prepare this way before me. Uh, in, in my coming, uh, Isaiah the prophet spoke of this one who will, who will give voice as preparation to the coming of this one who would come, that messenger. In fact, even Malachi speaks of this messenger in, 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 in verse 5 of chapter 4. And he speaks of him as, as Elijah. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before that, I'm going to send Elijah. They knew Elijah, and so I wonder what they're thinking. Is this a reincarnation of Elijah? Is this Elijah coming back from the dead? Is this one like Elijah? And he speaks of this, this one Elijah. Now we know, now, looking back, who this messenger was, who this Elijah was, um, Jesus identifies him. He says, this Elijah, this messenger, was John the Baptist. In fact, when John's father, Zechariah, was, uh, had, had learned of, of the coming birth of this son, John, and he was being told of who he would be, he would say that he would have in him the very spirit and heart of Elijah, the spirit and power of Elijah. That's this one who was to come and He would be the one who would come and make preparation for the Lord's coming. And, and you remember the preparation that John the Baptist gave. Not, not simply in the baptism, but understanding what that baptism meant. It was a baptism for repentance. And so God was saying, even through this messenger who was to come, yes, I do hate evil. Yes, I am just. In order to be mine, to be in my present you, presence, you must Repent, you must turn from this sin and come to me. Yes, I really am concerned about it for it. But then this other is to come as well. He's referred to in two ways. Three ways, really. The title is the messenger of the covenant. The second way is me. As God says, the way before me And the third is Lord without the caps. Capital L, small O, small R, small D. What's that? Well, that translation of just Lord spelled like that in English means it isn't Yahweh, but another word, and and this is Adon, or Adonai as we might know it, this almighty, this sovereign Lord. And so he says, the Lord is going to come, and he's going to come into his temple and so God is saying, I'm going to come, and I'm going to come as, this, as the Lord, and I'm going to come to my, he's going to come to his temple. And we see in that coming now, we know, is Jesus. God in the flesh, Emmanuel. So in that sense, he could say, me, I'm coming. In another sense, he could say this, the Lord is coming, and he's, he's coming to his temple as as. As Jesus did come, this temple was, was his. And in coming to this temple, he would restore, if you will, its glory, the former glory. The God would come to his very temple. You remember when Jesus was a baby, there was a, a man who had been at the temple 
this man, Simeon. And, and when he saw Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus for dedication, uh, he, uh, he, he realized who this one was. And he said this. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here is the very glory of God returning to his temple, this Jesus, just like God had said through the prophet Malachi. He was, in fact, coming. In fact, this temple would be Jesus' temple. He would be the Lord of it. He would have authority over it. In fact, he determined what it was to be used for. He walked in one day and he saw it wasn't being used rightly. And so he cast people out and he says, this is how you're to use this temple. It's to be a house of prayer. And I can say that. I have authority to say that because I'm the Lord of this temple. In fact, he would say, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He was speaking of his body, the very temple, the very presence of God. In fact, Jesus would even commandeer the name of God as his own. He had no trouble at all referring to himself as I am. And in fact, one day being queried by a group of religious leaders, he said to them, before Abraham was, you would expect him to say, I was or I wasn't. But he simply said, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was talking about because they, they, they took up stones, the scripture said, to, to stone him because they thought he had been blasphemous, that he being a man was making him, himself out to be, I am, to be God. And so there he was. He took that very name out to be upon himself. In fact, he even took the name Lord to be his. He quoted, at one point in time, he quoted from Psalm 110. When he was being asked concerning the Christ in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. It says that while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of, and, and, and they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he then his son? Well, this this passage from Psalm 110 that Jesus quotes, it goes like this. Yahweh said to Adonai, Lord with all caps, Lord not all caps. And so in Malachi, when, when, when God is saying, I Lord caps will send Lord no caps. He is referring to Jesus, at least according to Jesus, because that's how they knew one another. And so here he is, this one who comes, this Lord Jesus. Now, rather tongue-in-cheek, God says to them in verse 2, in, in this passage, I'm sorry, verse 1. And he says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And I say tongue-in-cheek because he's saying, this is the one who's going to come, and, and you think he's the one you seek. You think 
uh, he's the one you delight in, but, but you don't really know him. You don't really know what you're asking here. You don't really, you don't really understand because you think that when he comes, everything's going to be all well and good because you're going to be able to hold your head high before him, but you're not. Because verse 2 says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? And that is, who can hold their ground before him? Implied, you can't hold your ground before him. You think he's going to come. And you'll be able to hold your ground and everyone else will fall. But understand, because he is concerned about evil, understand because he is just, you won't be able to hold your ground. And why is that? Well, he puts it like this. He says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And then verse 5, then I will draw near to you for Judgment. You see, when he comes, he's going to be this, this very one who, who, who comes. And, and it's, it gets a sense of severity here in verse 2. Who can hold their ground? And, and then also he's going to come as fire, this refiner's fire, this fuller soap, this smelly soap, powerful, that, 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 that cleans yucky, scummy wool and is used on that in the fullers who were the cleaners of this wool, sturdy, muscular men, they would beat the wool with this with sticks as they applied this yucky, horrible soap to it. He's going to be like that. That's what he thinks about evil. He's going to purify it, cleanse it. It's got to be out. And judgment will come. See, this describes, this describes Jesus. It it describes him in the, in the passage that I read from uh, Luke this morning, which was about John the Baptist and the preparation uh, coming, that expression, the end of what I read, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire, his willowing fork in his, in his hand to, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the, the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, he says, listen, he's so concerned about evil that here's what he's going to do when he comes. He's going to come with the Holy Spirit. And, and so in order to be received by him, the Spirit of God is going to have to come and give new life and cleanse and purify with fire. But yet there'll be others who do not receive him, others who do not believe, and they will receive unquenchable fire. John, in his gospel, As Jesus speaking, here's what Jesus says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yes, Holy Spirit, purifying fire. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Judgment. And in the second coming of Jesus, we we see the same thing. We see on the one hand, he is going to judge and, and those who have not repented, those who do not believe in him, they'll, they'll be judged, they'll be condemned, they'll be cast into this unquenchable fire. But those who have repented, those who have believed, will be pure in his sight and received by him into eternal glory 
So Jesus says, uh, the, so God says through Malachi, through Jesus, you need to know by way of this gospel, this coming of my son. That yes, I am concerned about evil, so much so that I can't abide it. It must be purified, it must be cleansed, or it must be condemned. And so we see, if we could take this verse 5, first we see this, this judgment that, that, that comes, and it's against those, and he lists a number of sins here, but, but really the category, he says, it, it comes against those, this final judgment uh, that do not fear me, says the Lord. That is to say, those who, who, who don't realize who I am, those who thus haven't repented, turned from their sins, those who thus haven't trusted me. He says, those who don't fear me. And you can see it by way of their lives. Their, their lives are lived as if I don't exist. Their lives are lived as if they don't fear me. Their lives are lived uh, as, as if it really doesn't matter to me at all that I'm not here. And so he speaks of sorcerers, those who trust the superstitions, those who trust that which isn't God. Against the adulterers, those who have been faithless to the covenants with their spouses because they think it really doesn't matter to God at all. And so they simply say, I can live willy-nilly. I can live however I wish. I'm not happy. Therefore, I will divorce or seek another. Those who swear falsely, that is, they break covenant with one another. It says it doesn't matter if I live according to my word. Uh, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourners, that is, that, that treat others unjustly. Because God says, I do am concerned about justice and that which is right. And if you live as if I don't, that is, you live this injustice out, then you must not fear me. You must not have repented. You must not come because you see, that's what I think about, about all of that. But then he says, to those who have repented, to those who fear him, he comes like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as his former years. You said, listen, I so hate evil that I come to do away with it. I come to purify it. I come to cleanse. Now we think about this cleansing, refining, purifying of sin that Jesus brings. We need to think of it in two ways. We need to think of it in two ways. One is in its definitive character, and the other is in its progressive character. All right? In its definitive character, what we have is that when a person repents and believes, then their sins are forgiven. They are declared before God holy, that is, righteous. The big word for that, word we use for that is justification. They're justified, that is, they're declared by God to be righteous. That's the sense in which when Christians say things like... When I get up in the morning, there is no one more righteous on the face of the earth than me. Now, what a person means by that is, because I believe in Jesus, and he is righteous, that God gives to me as a believer in Jesus, the very righteousness of Jesus, so that, having his righteousness, I'm as righteous 
as anyone could be. It's a declaration. And God has said, I count you as righteous. You remember that in the days of Abraham, when Abraham believed God, God said, I'm counting this faith as righteousness. That is, you're righteous not by anything inherent, but you're righteous by faith. Because you've trusted, I've, another big word, imputed, counted to you, righteousness. I'm considering you to be righteous. And he considers us to be righteous on the basis of Christ. Another expression. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need to understand that that is, that is true of us. And because of that, you see, at that moment of time, at that moment of conversion, if you will, of repentance and faith, we are declared righteous, we are washed, we are cleansed. That's a once-for-all, once-for-all thing. For instance, as Paul writes to Titus, Titus chapter 3, In verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says, listen, verses I didn't read before that, we were not fearing God, we were disregarding Him. But then the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior came to us. He saved us, not because of our own righteousness, but because of His work, His mercy. And what His mercy brought was washing, cleansing. He brought that cleansing once for all. The washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit. And all of this came through Jesus Christ. So that being justified, that is being declared righteous by His grace, then we belong to him. We're heirs. We're heirs of eternal life. That sense in which then Jesus took the penalty for our sin and the purifying that came from the refining and also from the washing of the fluid. And he gave it that to us. And thus we were washed by the work of, by the work of Christ. We could find other passages that, that speak of that to us. For instance, 1 Corinthians and chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. That's that sense of it. No matter what you were, in the past, and the list could be longer than there, more detailed than that. But he says, no matter what you once were, as one who's repentant and come to faith in Jesus, now you see, you have been washed. You're clean. Remember when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, and Peter said, I won't let you do this to me. And Jesus said, well, if I don't do this to you, then you have no part of me. And Peter said, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus said, no, your feet are fine. That's all I want to do. I'm making a point here. You're clean already by the word that's been spoken. But you got a little dirty. I'm going to clean you up. And that's the sense of you've been washed, you see. You were sanctified. Now, the big word simply means set apart to be holy. 
past tense happened. Receive it. Believe it. You were justified, declared righteous, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you see. That happened. If you're a believer in Christ, that's true. You've been washed, cleansed. You've been sanctified. Past tense already happened. Set apart. You belong to God for all eternity. You've been justified, declared righteous. That's true. However, because God hates evil, and while he's made provision for us in Christ by way of this imputation, giving it to us, granting it to us, clothing us with it, declaring it to be true, he still works in us. He still desires for the evil in us, the sin in us, to be gone. And so we must expect through the course of our lives experiential cleansing, the experience of being refined. And we need to expect that at times to be painful, to have measures of severity. That's why I think he used the illustration he does, this fuller soap, as I mentioned, this, this soap that's made out of lye and clay and ashes of plants and even animal urine. Uh, so it's stinky and smelling so much so that the fullers had their own field. They put them out away from everyone else because it was horrible. And, and they took this gross stuff and they rubbed it on this scummy, straggly wool that had come off these animals. And, and, and they... They, they rubbed it on there, a little water, and they beat it to try to get these clean as they could possibly be. Does that sound like your life sometimes? Sounds like mine sometimes. And then this refiner, we, we get that picture, the smith, the goldsmith, silversmith, whatever, comes in and, and refines this, this gold to make it pure so that Everything impure, everything that isn't gold, everything that isn't silver is taken out of it. The, the, um, the uh, missionary to India, Amy, Carmile, Amy Carmichael, uh, writes to this, she says, One day, we took the children, that is the orphanage, we took the children to see a goldsmith refine gold after the ancient manner of the East. He was sitting beside his little charcoal fire. He shall sit as a refiner, the gold or silversmith never leaves his crucible once it's on the fire. The red glow uh, lay a common curved roof tile. Another tile covered it like a lid. This was the crucible. It was in the medicine made of salt, various fruit and burnt brick dust, and embedded in it was the gold. The medicine or the what's being applied does not, does its appointed work on the gold uh, then the fire eats it. And the gold lifts, the goldsmith lifts the gold out with a pair of tongs, lets it cool, rubs it between his fingers, and if not satisfied, puts it back again in the crucible. But this time he blows the fire hotter than it was before, and each time he puts the gold into the crucible, the heat of the fire is increased. And he said this, it could not bear so hot at first, but it can bear it now. That's the image. It's the image that it's a process. It takes time for us to be purified. 
people ask me why I don't believe in purgatory as my Roman Catholic friends do. And I say two reasons really. One, I don't find it in the scripture. And two, this is it. This refining, this purifying takes time. It takes great attention by the smith to make sure that it is refined in such a way that the actual gold or silver isn't damaged, but it's refined so that the gold or silver, whatever it is, becomes pure. You can't leave it once he starts. It takes his wisdom and expertise. He knows exactly what, what formula to use in order to, to purify it. He knows exactly how much heat. And, and at first, he knows how much heat it can and can't take. And, and then later, how much heat it really can need. And, and thus, how much it can take uh, as, as well. We, we see this. The psalmist of, of 119 knows his, his own life and, and what it took for him to walk with God. He puts it like this. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He said, I was purified. And if you had asked me in the beginning, I would have said, oh, I don't need it. But now that it's done, I say, yes. That's precisely what I needed. And it is indeed good for me. The author of Hebrews explains it like this. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. That is training, purification. Endure it. You will be purified. And there are times when it feels like you're in that fire. There are times when it feels like he's taken you out and looked and said not enough and put you back in and raised and raised the fire. Peter puts it like this. He says, about us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, would be tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy. A joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. James puts it like this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking, and lacking in nothing. One poet put it like this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. And ne'er a word said she, but, but oh, the things I learned from her. When affliction walked with me. So the command of God, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, cut it off. Now we know. He wasn't speaking literally, but figuratively. But he he meant this. Whatever in your life is impure, deal with it. Take it away. He said, if you want to follow me, want to be my disciples, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. That is to say, put to death 
that which is of sin. The apostle writes, mortify the flesh that is crucified the flesh. That means put to death all that isn't true within me. Because you see, when we, when our sin is being really dealt with, it feels like death. Because you see, we've come to rely upon it. That's our way of life, if you will. And some of it goes off very nicely and very easily. And, and some of it we don't even miss. But there's some there that's ingrained, that's besetting stuff, this stuff that's identity with us. And, and we realize this is true of me. And, and you see, for the proud man, when, 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 when God is purifying and cleansing pride, it can feel painful to be no longer in control, to be the one no longer honored, to be the one who steps aside and lets another. For the selfish one, when, when, when God is purifying and cleansing that selfishness, to be made to think of others first in the insecurity that that may bring to think another is getting credit for this, not me, then others getting this and not me, and, and to be generous to that one, and to say to give up what I have so that they can have and, and the feeling of insecurity, the lack of control in the midst of that can be painful, really. The one who's being purified of lust, the pain of the control and the perceived satisfaction and all of that, the one who is being purged of bitterness, the trial of forgiving another, of anger, the trial of being patient and kind and compassionate be like death <laughs> the pain of that at the end of her time out with the children of the orphanage as Amy Carmichael took them to see this goldsmith refined gold right before they left she asked this question of him she said how do you know when you're finished how do you know when it's pure and she says he said this I take it out, and when I can see my face in it, then I know it's pure. Comes a time when the Lord Jesus will return, that we'll see him and we'll be as he is, and it's at that moment that the Lord will look at us and he will see in us the very face of Jesus. See, that's the joy of it. The joy and the pain of it is to say, huh, I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus. I, a day will come when the Father will see the very face, his very face in me. He will see Christ in me. It won't simply be, though it will always be by way of imputation. It will also be by way of imparting, by way of purifying and cleansing us, that we would be righteous. So when they wearied the Lord, when they said, do you really care about evil? Do you delight in, in that which is evil? God said, no. And, and when they said, are you just? And God said, yes. And, and to answer that question in one word, uh, it would be gospel. He proved it by way of the gospel, the coming of, of Jesus. Because you see, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given to you in the same way. 
He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, it was the blood of the covenant because Jesus was the messenger of the covenant. He was the one to come and enforce the covenant. He was the one to say that there is judgment for breaking it, yet there is grace of God. And the judgment is for those who do not fear him. Says that's how I deal with evil. That's just. But he says, for my own, those whom I've loved. There is the Holy Spirit to bring new life. There is repentance. There is forgiveness. There is righteousness. There is cleansing. There is purifying. And we say, well, how can that be just? How can you acquit us? And his answer is because I've taken your guilt and placed it upon another. Do you know that when Jesus spoke about hell, when he spoke about the unquenchable fire, when he spoke about weeping and gnashing of teeth, when he spoke about a place where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched, he never did it flippantly. And the reason he never did it flippantly is because he knew that it awaited him. He knew that he would know that because he knew that was the justice of God. And he knew that he had come to take the justice of God for the sins of sinners. And he did. Does God care about justice? Will God bring justice? Yes. Did God bring justice through Jesus? Yes. Does he delight in evil? No. And so when Jesus died, he dealt with evil so those who repent and believe could be purified. Now he cleansed and washed, yes. Declared righteous, yes. And now he says, because I love you, because I'm your father, I will discipline you, I'll train you, I'll purify you. There'll be times when it will be painful. The providential circumstances will come into life that will be painful. The situations will come into your life, your body, it will be painful. That eradicating certain sins from temptations will be painful. I want you to know it's like a refiner. It's like the fuller soap. But I want you to know, it's going to take time. I want you to know, I'll never leave you. I want you to know that I know exactly what to do. I want you to know that I'm in charge of the whole process. I want you to know that the fire won't get too hot at any one point in time. I want you to know if it gets very hot, it's because I know that that's exactly what's necessary and I won't destroy you but I'll purify you through it. Trust me. And we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we trust you because of Jesus. He knows us. He is 
for us. So I pray that you would set this bread and this juice aside in such a way that we know that we're in his very presence, the very justice of God, and the very mercy of God. And I pray that what we have gone through, what we may be going through, and what we will go through in the course of life, we would do so trusting you, knowing that every circumstance, every situation is purifying, is cleansing to us. And that that is for our good and for your glory. May we never question your goodness. May we never question your intentions. May we submit to you in all things. Make us pure. Cleanse us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. To receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners who desire to live in such a way that is pleasing to him. And that way that is pleasing to him is the way of repentance and faith. The way of purification and cleansing. So as you come today to this table, have in your mind, Jesus, I come to you. I come that you would purify me, that you would cleanse me. I lay my sins before you, my life before you. I trust you. Make me holy. Please come. These two sections, sound to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, remind yourself that God is good. He is good. Please come.